Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, I have something embarrassing to tell you guys. Um, I, <laughs> Sarah said, tell us. She is... Very excited about me embarrassing myself in front of you guys this morning. Um, So the embarrassing thing I have to tell you is that I have become hooked on a reality dating TV show. Um, It's not something I'm proud of. It's not really normally my type of entertainment. Uh, I, I think I've even openly mocked reality dating shows from this stage before. Um, so consider this my public repentance. Um, the, the show that I've started watching uh, is called Love is Blind. <laughs> Fairly one or two other people have become hooked on this show. Um, it's on Netflix. Uh, if you haven't watched it, uh, the premise of the show is that uh, the contestants get to know each other. They meet each other and get to know each other without ever seeing each other at all. They're on either side of like a, a pod. It's like a big room, and they have a wall in the middle, and they get to know each other without ever seeing one another's appearance at all. Uh, and I would love to tell you that because of that, it, it's filled with these like rom-com-esque moments of true love just blossoming, blossoming and showing the world that we don't really care that much about appearances. I would love to tell you that's what the show's about. And that happens once or twice, but for the most part, it is just like watching one train wreck after another. Um, and I think that's why it's such riveting television, uh, to be honest with you. Um, But on the most recent season of the show, and don't worry if you haven't finished the season, there's no season-ending spoilers here because I haven't even finished the season yet. Um, But no spoilers, but there's a a contestant named Shayna. Yeah, people feel all kinds of things about Shayna. And in the show, Shayna hits it off with a guy named Kyle. And I should say they kind of hit it off. It's a very, like, one step forward, one step back type of relationship. I promise this is going somewhere, by the way. I just feel like I should (laughs) acknowledge that. Um, But as things start to get serious in the show, uh, Shayna all of a sudden realizes that this guy, Kyle, that she's getting to know is an atheist, which for her is an issue because she at least considers herself to be a Christian, In her words, she says, my faith is like one of the most important things about my life. (laughs) Many of you have watched the show at this point. And so her concern in that moment, when she finds out that Kyle is an atheist, is that their relationship won't really work because they'll have all sorts of conflict and problems and tensions arising from that difference between them. And here's the thing. I actually agree with Shana in principle. I I think she's absolutely right. Two people who don't share the same assumptions about the world will generally have a very hard time sharing life together long term. That makes total sense. The interesting thing about Shana saying that, though, is that so far in the show, 
there has been absolutely nothing, and I mean nothing, to indicate that she is a follower of Jesus. Like nothing at all. She is full of herself. She's extremely shallow. Uh, when getting to know guys on the show, she, her thing is like she asks them what, what they're wearing on the other side of the wall in like this very creepy, over-sexualized kind of way. Uh, she doesn't care much about the other women on the show at all. In fact, she sees them purely as competition, as obstacles in her way to whoever she wants to date on the show. And later in the show, she goes out of her way to sabotage other people's relationships. She's just not a very pleasant human being at all. Uh, if, you've ever seen the if you've never seen the show, uh, just imagine like the personality of Angela from the show The Office, uh, <laughs> but with crop top shirts and Botox. That's, that's Shayna. That's who Shayna is on the show. So nothing about her life would indicate that she actually has a heart transformed by Jesus. And I get that editing can do a lot. So I, maybe if I met her, I would totally change my mind about her. But there's nothing that would indicate that about her. And yet, she is convinced that if she gets engaged to a guy who doesn't believe in Jesus, it will never work out for them. When in fact, they might be perfect for one another because neither of them are actually Christians. She just thinks that she is. As a follower of Jesus, as you're watching this go down in the show, it is just a maddening part of the development of the show. So feel free to watch the show or, or don't. I don't know that I can ever get these hours of my life back. Um, <laughs> but here's why I bring it up. Uh, while Shana's perspective on faith in the show is a little bit of a caricature. I mean, it's, it's exaggerated for effect. It's really obvious. It's really ridiculous. I don't actually think her perspective is an uncommon one when it comes to faith, when it comes to how people think about their faith. I actually think plenty of people, at least here in America, especially here in the South, think about their faith pretty similarly to Shana. They see their faith as just one important thing about them. Not the most important thing, mind you, just one of them. One of the most important things about them. So when these people think about their life, it's like they have their family over here and their career over here and their hobbies and their interests over here. And then over here in its own hermetically sealed container is their faith right? And there's no need for that to intermix or interfere with any of the other things in their life. It's just one thing in their life, maybe even one of the most important things, but it's not the important thing. It, it matters, but only sometimes. It, it doesn't have to matter, in other words. It's a good fallback, so it's, it's helpful and uplifting when maybe some of these other things in life let them down or fall through, but it's not much more than that. Faith is no more than that for people. I think that is how a good many people tend to think about their faith. But by the end of today's passage, we've been walking through Matthew as a church family together. By the end of today's passage, we're going to see that that is not at all how Jesus envisions faith. When Jesus discusses faith, it is something that has real-life consequences, and real-life impact. It's something that undergirds and guides every other aspect of our lives as followers of Jesus in the good times and in the bad and everything in between. 
Faith, in other words, is the stuff that life is made of. And before we're done, Jesus is going to show us that. He's going to show us how to pursue that type of faith as well. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, we're going to pick it up in verse 14. You guys doing all right? You awake? Love it. Matthew 17, verse 14, says this. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. So if you just stop right here in this passage, if you don't read anything else, this story reads like probably a dozen others that we've read in the Gospel of Matthew so far. Someone approaches Jesus and wants healing from him. In this case, it's a man wanting Jesus to heal his son, who appears to be suffering from some form of epilepsy. The condition is bad enough, apparently, and unpredictable enough that he is a danger to himself at times. So the father wants Jesus to heal his son. That's the situation. Now, that is a very frequent type of occurrence in Jesus' ministry. Like I said, we've read it dozens of times already in the Gospel of Matthew. All of that sounds familiar to us until we read the next part, verse 16, where it says this. The father continues, I brought him to your disciples but they could not heal him. So here's where we find out that this isn't just a story about a man who wants his son healed. It's a story about the disciples' inability to provide that healing. So this man's request is actually his second attempt at asking for healing for his son after the disciples were unable to do it. He is dissatisfied with his service and he wants to talk to a manager, essentially, <laughs> is what's happening in this passage. Now, remember for context in this story, Jesus has just been up on a mountain with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, for the transfiguration. We covered that last week. And evidently, while they were up there on the mountain, the rest of the disciples tried and failed to heal this man's son. So the man brings his son to Jesus and asks Jesus to do what the disciples couldn't. Let's take a look at Jesus' response, verse 17. You unbelieving and perverse generation. That escalated quickly, didn't it? Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus responds by lamenting this unbelieving and perverse generation in front of him. Now, most indicators are that he is directing this comment at his disciples, not at the father who wants his son healed, but they are nonetheless really strong words, right, to come from Jesus. So let's make sure we understand before we go any further what Jesus means and doesn't mean when he says this. He does not mean you guys are exhausting and I can't wait until I don't have to be around you anymore. It may sound like that when we read it. That's not what Jesus means, though. Jesus is frustrated, but his frustration is not out of some sort of selfish love for comfort, like our frustration often is. Rather, Jesus is frustrated because after all of the time that he's spent with the disciples so far, and after all that they have seen him do and empower them to do, they apparently are still struggling to trust him. 
Back in Matthew chapter 10, it says that Jesus sent these same disciples out and, quote, gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to say it's actually better that he would depart and go be with the Father because then his disciples will be able to do even greater works than these, even greater works than what Jesus has been doing. So at least in theory, the disciples should be able to heal this man's son, which means Jesus is not saying to them, oh, you guys are exhausting and I can't wait until I have to, don't have to be around you any longer. He's saying how long do I have to be here with you guys so that you see you are capable of doing all of the things that I've empowered you to do? How long do I have to be here for you to realize you don't need me? You're going to have the promised Holy Spirit. Do you hear the difference between those two things? That's what Jesus is saying here. And furthermore, Jesus' words here are drawn directly out of another passage in the Old Testament. In fact, the whole sequence of events in Matthew 17 is reminiscent of another story in Exodus that we mentioned briefly last Sunday. So in Exodus chapter 32, Moses goes up on a mountain to speak with God, and when he comes back down the mountain, he finds all of the Israelites in total disarray at the bottom of the mountain. While he was gone, they have all taken off their golden jewelry. They've melted it down to form a golden calf. They are now worshiping that golden calf that they've created. There's also some weird sexual stuff going on as a part of this brand new pagan religion that they've invented. Just overall, on the whole, not a great day for the nation of Israel. Like, not on the highlight reel, not something that they want people to know about them. So Moses is gone for a short period of time, and he comes down the mountain to find the rest of the people failing to trust and love God in pretty substantial sorts of ways. Even though, remember, the Israelites at this point had just seen God do incredible things on their behalf. He had parted the seas for them to walk through. He had provided water in the middle of the desert out of a random rock on the hillside. They had seen God do the incredible right in front of them, and yet they still neglected to trust him for provision while Moses was gone. This story in Matthew is written almost like a retelling of that story from Exodus 32. And then later in Moses' life, when he is reflecting on and grieving moments like that one from Israel's history, he says this. We'll put it up on the screen. This is Deuteronomy chapter 32. Moses says, he, God, is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he, but they are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. So that last part of De Deuteronomy 32 should sound familiar to us, right? We think Jesus is either translating or just alluding to these verses from Moses in Deuteronomy 32 when he says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, which means he sees in the disciples and the people of Israel a version of the same hard-heartedness and failure to trust that was evident in the people of Israel in the story of the Exodus. And that posture is demonstrated evidently in how they could not heal the boy suffering from epilepsy. So after making that comment, Jesus simply says the words, bring the boy here to me. 
Bring the boy here to me. And that's what happens. Verse 18 says this. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Now, just briefly here before we keep moving, this part of the story seems to indicate that this boy's illness was the result of demon possession. And I realize that might seem weird to us since we just thought he had a medical condition until this point in the passage. And some people have used stories like these to insist that all sickness or all disease is due to demonic activity. But I think it's a mistake to translate it that way. Because there are plenty of places in the New Testament and the Gospels where Jesus comes across someone with an illness and he says nothing about a demon. He says nothing about it being demonic in origin. But sometimes, evidently, the two did overlap medical conditions, and demonic activity. And evidently, this was one of those times. So the passage speaks of Jesus casting out a demon from the boy, not because that's always how Jesus healed sickness, but because that's how he healed this sickness. Does that make sense? So really, whatever your thoughts are on all of that, though, that's really beside the point in this passage. Because remember, this story actually isn't primarily about the healing itself. It's about how the disciples could not perform the healing without Jesus there, which is why the passage ends the way that it does with a conversation between Jesus and the disciples about what just went down. So take a look with me at verse 19, because this really, I think, is the focus of this story. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we drive it out? So this is the question that any of us would have asked if we were in the disciples' position, right? Jesus, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we drive it out? Because remember, Jesus has and will continue to empower his disciples to do things exactly like this, and the disciples know that. They know that they should have been able to cast it out, so they want to know why they couldn't in this scenario. Here's Jesus' answer. Look at verse 20 with me. He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. The reason they couldn't do it is something that Jesus has been saying to the disciples over and over again in nearly every story during this section of Matthew. It's because they have so little faith. That's why they couldn't heal the boy. And then Jesus says the same thing, but this time he puts it positively. He says, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would happen. If you have the tiniest amount of faith, nothing will be impossible for you. Now, obviously this statement is meant as hyperbole from Jesus. He's been telling the disciples this same message for story after story after story now. So now he's using the strongest possible language he can think of to try to get them to hear what he's saying. A mustard seed was the smallest imaginable item that they could think of in his day. So you and I might would say something like, as small as the size of a grain of sand. Very similar in their day. 
He says, if you have even that tiny amount of faith, you can move mountains with it. So moving mountains is actually still an expression that we use today for accomplishing the impossible, right? Uh, ain't no mountain, Diana Ross, anybody? That was for the older folks in the room. Everybody else is like, I have no idea. That's not on my Spotify, so I don't really know. But that's still an expression we use today, right? But back then, it had an added layer of meaning. Ancient people often believed that mountains had roots, kind of like trees, but much bigger, way down deep in the ground. And so Jesus is telling them that if they have even the smallest amount of faith, they could pull these mountains up by the roots and move them to another place. Jesus is trying to get his disciples to see that there are massive, real-life implications to possessing even the smallest amount of faith. So I want us to slow down for just a moment here, and I want us to really dissect what Jesus is saying, because I think it would be easy to come away from this passage with some things that Jesus isn't saying, with some misunderstandings about it. For instance, people have used passages like this one to say that anytime someone wants to be healed but isn't healed, that it must be because of a lack of faith on their part. So someone wants healing, they ask a follower of Jesus to heal them, it doesn't happen, and the follower of Jesus says, well, I guess you just didn't have enough faith. You had some, didn't have enough. But in my opinion, not only is that to misapply this passage, it's also to fail to read it very closely. Because Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples here for failing to reach an optimal level of faith. He rebukes them for not having hardly any faith at all. He literally says, all you need is the tiniest amount of faith, and with that, you can accomplish nearly anything. Jesus is not looking for super Christians, chock full of faith, with their spiritual capes waving in the wind behind them. He is looking for people with a very simple, small amount of trust in what the Spirit of God can do in their midst. Jesus does not need you and I to have impressive faith. He just needs us to have faith in the first place. Which I think raises the very important question, what is faith exactly? Right? If, if, if we're going to know what faith is, we're going to know what it looks like to implement faith into our life, we're going to have to know what we're talking about exactly. So an illustration may be helpful here. Eric, if you wouldn't mind bringing me that chair. So... For at least the last 75 years or so, um, pastors and Bible teachers have used this illustration to talk about what faith is, a chair. And I figured, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, maybe I should just use the illustration that's been used for generations and generations. So I didn't try to come up with anything new. So pardon me if this is something you've already heard of or something you've already noticed. Just pretend you're hearing it for the very first time and that it's awesome. Um, so the word faith in the Bible, is the Greek word pistis. Maybe don't say that one out loud, just maybe. Um, it can be translated faith or belief or confidence, but I personally think that the most helpful translation in English is actually the word trust. So the word trust, that's what we're talking about when we hear that word in the New Testament. When Jesus talks about faith, what he's referring to is trust in who he is 
and trust in what he is capable of, including what he is capable of when he works through us, followers of Jesus. And here's the thing about trust. Trust is a very real-life type of thing, right? You can't really fake trust, at least not very well, at least not for very long. For instance, if you ask me, Kent, do you trust that that chair can hold you up? And I said, yes. And then you said, okay, sit in the chair, and I refused to sit in the chair, you would correctly argue that I do not, in fact, trust that chair, right? Because faith, trust, is a real-life sort of thing. Trust is not just acknowledging that the chair will hold me up, it's actually sitting down in the chair. Now, there are a variety of ways to display your trust in that chair, right? So I can do it with a lot of bravado, right? I I can make a big deal out of my confidence and trust in that chair. I can say, I am the type of person who always trusts in chairs, right? I can sing songs loudly about the trustworthiness of that chair. Great is thy faithfulness, O chair, right? I can sing, I really, really trust Chairs, I can become known by all of my peers and everyone who walks through life with me as the type of person who, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the situation, always, and I do mean always, sits down in chairs. I can do all of that, and then I can sit down in the chair, and that's faith. That's faith. It it maybe is what Jesus calls a great amount of faith. But that's faith, sitting down in the chair. Or I can approach the chair with a great deal of hesitancy. I can have lots of doubts and hesitations and reservations about the chair. I can be very tentative about it. I can decide to do some research on the chair manufacturer and the type of materials that made the chair, and I can, I can be very hesitant about it. I can wrestle thoroughly with what it looks like to trust a chair like this, and after I do all of that, I can decide that the chair is trustworthy, and I can sit down in the chair, and even with the hesitancy, that is also faith. That's what Jesus might call a small amount of faith. But I think what Jesus wants us to see in this passage is that how you decide to sit down in the chair and how you feel about your trust level in the chair is at best of only secondary importance. What matters at the end of the day is just one thing. Do you sit in the chair or do you not? That's what faith is, whether or not you sit down. How you arrived at that level of trust in the chair is up to you. But if you're willing to sit in the chair, Jesus says that he can use that, whatever it looks like, to accomplish unbelievable types of things. All that he asks is that you and I trust enough to sit down in it. So let's bring it out of illustration world for just a second and bring it into real life. Let me try to give you some actual scenarios to see what faith might look like in your life, to see what it might look like in others' lives. 
What does faith actually look like in practice? Um, For example, single people in the room. Let's say that you're a follower of Jesus and you know what the scriptures teach about how it's a bad idea to date somebody who's not a believer. You know that. You're at least at Shana's level, right? You know that. But at the same time, you're currently dating someone who's not a believer, and to be honest, it's kind of great. They make you feel really good about yourself. They make you feel really good about your life. And you're thinking to yourself, surely God wouldn't be against this. And it seems like you've at least got enough in common with that person to make it work, right? Plus, not being with someone in a culture that idolizes romance is awful. Zero out of ten, that experience right now, right? But at the end of the day, you know what the scriptures clearly teach. Okay, in that scenario, faith would look like breaking off the relationship because you trust God's design for human relationships. And you trust him to be enough, even if that means a season or a life of singleness as a result. That is sitting down in the chair. That's faith. That's what Jesus is talking about. I'll give you another example. New parents in the room. Let's say you are trying to help your baby learn to calm down on their own at night and go to sleep. Let's say it's midnight, they start crying in the other room, and you know they don't need to eat, you know they don't need a diaper change, but it's been 15 seconds and you just feel like you need to go in there. All the parents in the room have been in this precise scenario, maybe every night, depending on the age of your kid. It's been 15 seconds and you just feel like you need to go in there just to make sure they're not dying or something, you know? Like, just to make sure. Okay, in that scenario, trust may very well look like staying put, at least for the moment. It could mean trusting that the way God watches over your kid is much more reliable than you needing to be with your kid at all times. It means trusting that it is a good thing for your kid to learn to function at times without you always immediately by their side. That is sitting down in the chair and trusting that God can handle it. I'll give you one more example. Those of you who have been hurt or burned by the church, which I know is a lot of us in this room, Those of you who know that God's intention for you is to be a part of a local body of believers, to be an active part of that community where you can know others and be known by others. Those of you that know that is part of God's design, but but it's just so unappealing to you because of past experiences you've had in the church. And just everything in you wants to go, you know what, I'll... I'll just catch a podcast. I'll just listen to a pastor online. That's basically the same as church. Okay, in that scenario, 
Faith would look like putting forth the effort to be a part of a local community of believers, even if that's difficult, and even if you need to slowly ease your way into it as you wrestle with past hurts. And you're doing that because you trust God's design for you as one of his people. That is sitting down in the chair. That's trust. That's faith. That's trusting that God knows best even when what he says and what he thinks does not align perfectly with what I feel right now. That's what Jesus means when he talks about faith. And we could go on with examples just like that, right, for days. I've got to trust that the Holy Spirit in each of us is helping us see maybe areas that we need to trust more fully in who Jesus is and what God is capable of. But I want you to see the essence of what faith is. It's a real-life sort of thing. Faith is trusting in God's purposes and God's intentions and God's provision, even if and when things in you want to war against it at times. But it's trusting in all of those things, not just in theory, but in practice. It's actually sitting down in it. It's, it's not just knowing or acknowledging that God will provide or that God is enough, but structuring your life in such a way that you bank on God being enough. And let's be honest, in some areas of our life, that's probably really easy for some of us to do. In some areas, right? There's probably some parts of our lives where we have very few hesitations or reservations about trusting God, and we can almost do it without thinking much about it at all. And at the same time, there are probably other areas of life where we're doing it with hands and hearts trembling. We're doing it with doubts and uncertainty and reservations, but what matters is that we're still sitting down in the chair. Faith can come in all shapes and sizes and attitudes and appearances, but Jesus says if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, like a grain of sand, he can and will accomplish incredible things through that faith, no matter how small it is. So one question that we might be asking at this point is why does the amount of faith not matter? Just rationally speaking, seems like that should be relevant, right? Why doesn't it matter how much faith you have to Jesus? I think there's one simple reason for it, because faith is not about how much of it you have, it's about whether or not it's in the right place. It's about whether or not it's in the right place. And listen, we all trust in something. We might be trusting in a lot of different things. We all trust in something. We instinctively as human beings know how to trust. The question is, are we trusting in the right thing? How boldly or how hesitantly I sit in that chair doesn't ultimately matter at all, right? What matters is the strength of the chair. 
It doesn't matter how I sit in it. What matters is whether or not it can hold me up. Faith is always more about the object of it than it is the amount of it. And I can tell you without reservation this morning that the object of our faith as followers of Jesus is the most sure thing in the universe. We don't have to wonder whether or not God can hold us up. We don't have to wonder whether or not he's trustworthy. We don't have to wonder about his intentions towards us or his purposes for us. They are trustworthy. They are worthy of our faith. Paul in the book of Romans says that we can know that because of the cross. If God did not spare his own son for us, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? If ever we doubt God's provision, God's love, God's intentions for us, we get to look straight ahead at the cross where God withheld nothing for our sake. A person who does that can be trusted. That's how we know God can be trusted. But let's say you you know all of that as a follower of Jesus. You're aware of that, but you still feel like you struggle with faith and trust in who God is. I would imagine that's a scenario that at least some of us have found us in a time or two, right? Let's say we're wanting to increase our confidence level in who God is, what he's capable of. How exactly do we do that? What do we do if we realize that our level of faith does need to increase? The answer to that question is actually in our passage too, but it's hidden And I do mean like literally hidden. So look back with me at your Bibles for just a second. Matthew 17, we're almost done, I promise. Look back with me at your Bibles and scan down with me to the very end of verse 20. Do you notice anything weird about the end of that verse and the beginning of the next one, specifically about the verse numbers in your Bible? There's no verse 21. It goes straight from the end of verse 20 straight into verse 22. Now, if you've got a Bible like mine, it might give you a footnote that explains why that is. So mine says, some manuscripts here include words similar to Mark 9.29. So this is a bit technical. Bear with me for about 10 seconds, if you don't mind. What happened here is that years ago, when this passage was first translated, it included verse 21. But then, as more and more manuscripts were discovered, less and less of them contained verse 21. So as that happened, newer translations left that verse out and then included a footnote to say why. But here's the thing. Whether or not Matthew intended to include another verse there, we know for sure that Jesus did say the words that used to be in verse 21. Because the other parallel accounts of the same story in the other Gospels include Jesus saying it. So let's look on the screen at the verse formerly known as verse 21. So this is straight out of Mark 9, 29. Here's what it says. Jesus replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This kind can come out only by prayer. When Jesus' disciples ask him why they couldn't heal this boy, Jesus says to them, this kind can come out only by prayer. So it's hard to nail down precisely, but reading between the lines of the passage just a little bit, 
It seems like the disciples had forgotten the source of the power required to heal. If they didn't pray to ask God to heal the boy, that means that they thought they were capable of pulling it off on their own. So with this added statement from Mark 29, or Mark 9, 29, Jesus is calling the disciples up into what we just talked about. He's telling them one more time that the faith required to do incredible things is not about the amount of faith you have, it's about who your faith is in. Okay, so for us, if we want to grow in faith, it would seem that ground zero for that would be prayer, would it not? Prayer is one of the best ways to investigate whether or not we truly possess faith. Because prayer is trust and dependency on God in action, in practice. If we trust in God's ability, we will often be quick to pray. If we don't much trust in God's ability, we will be slow to pray. It's as simple as that. But listen, it also works in reverse. If you want to grow in faith, one of the best ways to do that is to spend more time in prayer. A guy named Paul Miller, who wrote, in my opinion, one of the best books on prayer that is out there right now, he calls prayer learned helplessness. Prayer is learned helplessness. In other words, every time we pray, we are resetting our minds and our hearts on the reality that we have nothing to offer on our own. If we were sufficient on our own, there would be no reason to pray. But because we're not sufficient on our own, we do. We pray. And there's something about taking that posture of prayer over and over and over again in our lives that realigns our hearts with what is actually true about us and what's true about God. Every time you pray, you are resetting your heart on the reality that there is someone more powerful than you, more wise than you, someone who is more reliable than your own strengths and your abilities. You are saying, God, I need you to be working on this. I need you to be thinking on this because if it's all up to me, it won't go well. Prayer is learned helplessness. And don't you think that if we were all to learn a little bit of helplessness in our lives, it would go a long way towards generating faith in us towards God? I'd be willing to bet that it would. To put it a slightly different way, every time we pray as God's people, it is like a mini gospel reminder. The gospel tells us that we bring nothing to the table and Jesus provides everything on our behalf through his life, death, and resurrection. So when we pray, we are reminding ourselves of that. That we bring nothing to the table and Jesus brings everything. And as we do that day in and day out throughout our lives, it will chip away at every bit of self-reliance and sinful independence in our hearts. And it will increase our trust in God's ability on our behalf. So if you want to grow in faith, try making a disciplined effort to grow in prayer. And over time, 
watch that blossom into faith in your heart and in your mind towards God. You see, faith is really only something that works in real life. It only works when you practice it in real life. It's not one important aspect of your life. God bless Shana, right? It's not one important aspect of your life. It is the explanation behind all of your life. It is something that either impacts all of your life in real ways or it doesn't. You either sit in the chair or you don't. So let's all ask Jesus together by the power of the Holy Spirit that he provided for us to increase our faith in him. And let's participate in regular practices like prayer that do precisely that in our minds and hearts. Prayer is learned helplessness. We're all helpless. We just tend to forget it sometimes. Prayer helps us remember that we're helpless. On that note, let me pray for us. Father, we ask you with every bit of earnestness in our heart this morning, increase our faith. Or if it helps to phrase it this way for some of us in the room, give us faith. God, you tell us that the smallest amount of faith can be used to accomplish the impossible. And God, I know that some of us in the room right now feel like we're just staring straight at impossible in so many different ways. Maybe it's in us. Maybe it's in our situations, our circumstances. Maybe it's in our relationships. I know a lot of us feel like we're staring straight at impossible. And God, we want to acknowledge that um, your answers to our prayer don't always look like we want it to look. You see things much better and bigger than we see. And so, God, we want to say that we trust you even in that. But, God, we ask that you would give us, that you would grant us by the power of your spirit faith in our hearts towards you. God, if there's areas where we need to wrestle with that, where we need to think through that, where we need to consider what that might need to change in us and our actions and our postures and our attitudes. God, I pray that we wouldn't leave here before we consider all of that. But God, if you would, by your spirit, if you would just, if you would just come and if you would just walk with us through all of that and give us clarity, give us understanding, give us humility, Give us the willingness to see things and adjust things that we may not want to see and we may not want to adjust. And God, I want to ask that through that whole process, we would trust that you are better, that you are enough, that you can be trusted, that you can be relied upon. And God, we ask that you would give us faith. 
We ask this in your name for our good, for your glory. Amen.